Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the small towns to the big cities, we bring you the stories that matter. This is, this is, this is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. They work hard day in and day out to bring you stories from everyday Americans. We tell the stories about this great country that may not be perfect, but it sure is beautiful. If you'd like to support us in all that we do here, visit OurAmericanStories.com and go to the Giving tab. 
Join our team in the work that we do and become a part of all that's going on here. We're a nonprofit and we appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly donations. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now we have a foster care story, Dr. John DeGuermo's story, and his wife's too. They've had over 60 foster children come through their home. Also, the story of when famous Hollywood actor Wayne Morris went to war, brought to us by Roger McGrath. But first, Matt Parker, a comedian and mathematician from Australia, tells us the story of the time Michael Larson surprisingly beat the game show Press Your Luck and gives a look into why computers can't be random. The best TV game shows sit at the intersection of skill and luck. And in the 1980s, there was one such game show called Press Your Luck. The skill component came from asking the contestants trivia questions. But then the luck came in via the big board. This is how prizes were dished out after a contestant had demonstrated their skill answering a trivia question. It was a massive screen with 18 boxes detailing different cash amounts or physical prizes and a cartoon character known as a whammy. The highlight on the board would rapidly flip between the different boxes in an apparently random order. The players would then win the content of whichever box was selected when they hit their buzzer, but if they landed on a whammy, the player would lose all the prizes they had accumulated so far. Stop. never linger on one box long enough for the player to see what it was, react, and then hit their buzzer. And because the movement was unpredictable, it was theoretically impossible for the player to anticipate which box was going to be selected. So they were picking at random. And most players would win a few prizes before retiring for that round. Other players, of course, would press their luck and get whammied. I mean, that was the idea in theory. Michael Larson was an ice cream truck driver from Ohio and they decided to see just how random the big board really was. So they taped some shows when it first started airing in 1983 and they poured over the footage trying to crack if there were any underlying patterns. And sure enough, they noticed that the board only had five predetermined cycles. They just went through them so fast that they looked random. So Michael set about memorising those five cycles, working out exactly when the optimum point to buzz in for each one would be, and then they flew out to Los Angeles and unbelievably managed to get themselves on the show as a contestant. The game starts normally enough. Michael was competing against Ed, a Baptist minister, and Janie, a dental assistant. Michael answers enough trivia questions correctly to earn some spins on the big board, and on his first go, he hits a whammy. 
By the start of the second round, Michael is in last place, but his trivia knowledge has just earned him seven more spins on the big board. This time, he does not hit a whammy. Oh no, he lands on $1,250. Okay, no whammies, no whammies. Come on, big bucks. I need lots of money. Come on. Yo, stop. Stop Woo! at $1,250. One spin left. And then on the next spin, $1,250 again. Stop! Stop! At $1,250 again. And then $4,000, $5,000, $1,000, a holiday, $4,000, and so on. As most of the prizes also come with a free spin, his reign on the big board seems to be everlasting. At first, the host, Peter Tamarkin, goes through his normal patter, waiting for Michael to hit a whammy. But Michael doesn't. In a freak of probability, Michael keeps selecting prize after prize. It is amazing to watch the range of emotions the host goes through. Initially, he's excited. Something unlikely is happening. But soon, he's trying to work out what on earth is going on while still maintaining his jovial game show host persona. What? I don't care. Whatever. Here we go. Stop! Stop it, five. Apparently, behind the scenes, chaos was breaking out as show executives and channel directors were trying to work out was Michael cheating? How how was this happening? To their eyes, Michael seemed to be celebrating too soon. He was pleased when he buzzed in in less time than he conceivably could have been reading the prize that he had won. Somehow, he already knew when to press the buzzer and which square he wanted to stop on. Now, of course, all of this could have been avoided if the game show Big Board was actually random. Then Michael wouldn't have been able to pour over the footage on VHS and memorise the five different cycles. But the designers of the Pressure Luck system had hard-coded set cycles instead of making it truly random, because being random is very difficult. There's not even really a case of it being difficult for computers to do something randomly. It's pretty much impossible. No computer can be random, unaided. Computers are built to follow instructions precisely. Processes are built to predictably do the correct thing every time. Making a computer do something unexpected is a very difficult feat. You can't have a line of programming code that says do something truly random without also having a specialized component attached to the computer to provide the randomness. The extreme version of this is to build a two-metre-high motorised conveyor belt that dips into a bucket of about 200 dice and lifts a random selection of them up past a camera. The computer can then use that camera to look at the dice, detect what numbers have been rolled, and use that as a source of randomness. And such a machine, capable of over 1.3 random dice rolls a day, would weigh over 100 pounds, fill a room with the cacophony of moving motors and rolling dice, and be exactly what Scott Nesson built for his Games by Email website. 
Scott, you see, runs a website where people can play games by email, which means he requires about 20,000 dice rolls per day. People who play board games do take their dice rolls very seriously. So he went to all the effort in 2009 to build a machine capable of physically rolling enough dice. He was sure to engineer the Dice-O-Matic so it was future-proof with plenty of spare capacity, hence the maximum output of over 1.3 million rolls per day. Scott currently has about a million unused dice rolls saved on his server, and the Dice-O-Matic fires up for an hour or two each day to top off the randomness reservoir, filling his house in Texas with the thundering sound of hundreds of dice rolling at once. However, the makers of Pressure Luck did not use that, and it meant that Michael Larson was able to memorize the patterns, and they ended up winning an unprecedented 110,237 dollars on the game show, about eight times more than the average winner. He had such an extended winning streak that the normally fast turnover game show had to split his appearance across two separate episodes. And even though they did look into if he was somehow cheating or breaking the rules, eventually Michael Larson did get all of his prize money. He managed to show that it was actually less effort to memorize the apparently random sequences than it was to memorize the trivia which the show was meant to be testing. Michael was able to take a game show which was supposed to be skill and luck and turn it entirely into a very specific different type of skill. And a great job by Robbie digging up that story and it's just a delight that an Ohio truck driver would spend his time cracking the code of a game show and then racking up $110,000 in winnings and then sort of being accused of cheating when all he did was, well, work hard and study and figure out how to, well, game the system. And a special thanks also to Matt Parker, a comedian and mathematician from Australia. Matt's book, Humble Pie, P.I., When Math Goes Wrong in the Real World, pick it up at Amazon.com and The Usual Suspects. And if you have a story to share, we want to hear it. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com. And click on the Your Stories tab. We can't wait to hear from you. Up next, Dr. John DeGarmo, founder of the Foster Care Institute, is a foster parent that's had over 60 children come through his home. Here's his story of how and why his family started to do foster care. I met my wife from Australia. We've traveled the globe singing and dancing, performing across the world in a super group called Up With People and fell in love during that year. In fact, during the year, she she was dating a guy from Germany and I was head over heels with a girl from Sweden. And, and we often joked that we both spoke the same language, English, so we thought it'd be easier if we got together. So we did. And we got married, lived in Australia. Our first child, died of a condition called anencephaly. Some pronounce it anencephaly. It's a condition where the brain or the skull never truly forms. And my wife was in labor for 92 hours. 92 hours. The baby died upon oxygen. Uh, I, I'll, be, I'll admit I went into a very, very dark space at that time. 
there was a time during my grieving process, again, I, I really was denying my grief. My wife and I were beginning the foster care process and I had this um, this nightmare. Well, you know, it really wasn't a nightmare. I, I, I remember waking up screaming. My wife tells me I screamed for five minutes, but she was shaking me and shaking me and shaking me and she could not get me to stop screaming. Finally, when I broke out of it, um, she asked me what it was about, and I have no recollection what it was about. I just felt that I was encompassed, if you will, in a cocoon of evil. It's the only way I can explain it. I was in a womb of just evil, and I was so scared. I was so afraid. I was just enveloped in fear, if you will, of absolute fear. Maybe evil wasn't the right word, of fear. And the next four days, I was just afraid. I was afraid to go to work. I was afraid to go to the grocery store. Everywhere I would turn, I was looking behind my shoulder, afraid. So at this point, my wife said to me, you need to go talk to a minister. We have been attending this church, but at that point, I had turned my back on my faith because, again, the death of my first child, and I really turned my back on a lot of things, including my faith. Because here we were, my wife and I had never taken drugs or alcohol, never smoked, yet our first child died and we knew people, related to people who had taken drugs and alcohol and had helped each other. And I just thought the irony was too great. There's no such thing as a God. So I was just filled with that that negativity, that, that distrust, if you will. So I went to the minister that we, we had been attending a church. I was going just for my wife's sake. Her faith was very strong. And for my children's sake, I felt they needed to be in a church but I was going through the motions. Um, and I talked to this minister and he said, John, it seems as if you're at a point in your life where you're going to turn over and start helping children. And it's as if the devil is trying to lure you back in one more time, try to take you back in one more time. Um, and, and he's trying to prevent you from doing this. And that led me to a lot of reflection that led me to a lot of time and prayer and now I, I couldn't do foster parenting without my faith it wasn't until a few years later when we moved back to the united states had three healthy children i was teaching in a rural high school setting in an area that was filled with a lot of poverty and a lot of apathy and i had some kids coming through my classroom lots of kids actually uh, who, who were suffering from issues of attendance, suffering from issues of academics, suffering from issues of behavior. And I kept asking myself, what is it? What is going on? Why so many children suffering from this? And then I met many of their birth parents. And I recognized, aha, starts in the home. So I went home. And I told my wife, hey, one of my students, she's a senior. She's, triplet, she's pregnant with triplets. And uh, she comes from a rough environment. I could just imagine that the triplets would be raised in a very, very harmful environment. So I said to my wife, what if I bought these three babies home? And my wife said to me, as long as you change the diapers, I tell you, I wish I had listened to her then because we went 20 years straight, 20 years straight with having at least one baby in our house in diapers. And my wife does hair. I do the diaper changing. I should have got my doctorate in diaper changing. So that discussion led to foster parenting and that led to us being trained as foster parents. And since then, I've written several books, I travel the world, and I've really devoted my entire life 
to making the system better. In fact, I'm driven each day to help children who are suffering. I hear often, Dr. John, I can't do what you do. It would hurt too much to give the kids back. And my response every time is, that's exactly how it's supposed to be. It's exactly how it's supposed to be. These kids, these kids that are placed in their homes as foster parents, they need, yes, they need the consistency and they need the structure and stability. But what they need more than anything else is for someone to love them with all their heart. Give them that unconditional love. So at the end of the day, when the child leaves, for whatever reason it might be, whatever reason they may leave the home, our hearts break. But I think that's a good thing. I think it's a gift. Because I might be the first person who's ever loved this child in a healthy fashion. I could be the first person who's ever cried for this child tears of grief when the child leaves. And that's a gift. That's a gift of a broken heart. Because at the end of the day, when the child leaves, they're taking with them my love. And hopefully my love will help them in some fashion. You know, a foster parent's heart's a lot like a quilt with all these patches placed over it. And I have grieved over 60 different times for children who have come to love as my own, but I wouldn't have it any other way. So we had these three boys come to our house, a 10-year-old boy, a 9-year-old boy, and a 7-year-old boy. And they had come to our house uh, with a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma. The 10-year-old and the 7-year-old really gravitated towards my wife and I and our family very, very quickly. They became very attached. Uh, my The 9-year-old did not. He had so many anger with him, as rightfully so. And, and during the time he was with us, he never had anything nice, anything positive to say to my wife or I. Always some type of critical remark. Uh, he was either withdrawn or he would lash out. Again, all in anger. But he was hurting. He was really, really hurting. And I recognize that. The day the three boys were to leave to be reunified with some family members, biological family members, my wife was at home taking care of some other kids. We had at that time nine children in our house. And uh, I was packing them up into the car. I was going to drive them off to their to their um, their relatives. Of course, there's a lot of crying, a lot of hugs, a lot of tears, a lot of I love yous with the 10-year-old and the 7-year-old. And the 9-year-old boy just stood off in the corner of the driveway. And I kept watching him, watching him. After a while, the 10-year-old and 7-year-old got into the car. And my wife is again saying goodbye. And I'm about to drive off. And the 9-year-old walks over to my wife very slowly with his head down, looking at the ground. And I thought... Oh no, oh no, what is he going to say? And my wife was looking at him expectantly with a smile on her face. And he looked up and he said four words to my wife that just shattered us. He said, Mommy, I love you. And he started crying. And I recognized at that point that we had been planting a seed in this child, a seed that was growing and blossoming into something that we were not we could not see during this time and that's what happens when you care for children foster care in your home you know we might not see what is happening underneath but there's a lot of when you give these children stability and structure and unconditional love that's where healing begins and that was a pivotal moment for my wife and i and of course my wife just broke down in tears and uh, just made us recognize you know this is worth it
We've had 60 plus kids come through our home. We've had the blessing to adopt three children. And we've had, we've experienced four failed adoptions, which means for some reason the adoption did not work out or the adoption was sabotaged or whatever it might be. I never set out to adopt a child from foster care. It was never our intentions to do that. We just felt there's children out there who, who are in need and that we can help these kids. Now, they, our first one that we adopted came to us when she was five days old. Five days old. She could fit in my hand. She was so small. Weighed a little over five pounds. And uh, it was never my intention to adopt her. But when her parental rights were terminated by her, by the biological parents, the biological parents' rights were terminated, known as TPR, uh, then there's a search for biological family members in the area, maybe the state, maybe even the whole country, who might adopt the child. If no one is found, then the foster parents often have the first right to adopt the child. Again, I didn't want to adopt the child. Now, the reason why I didn't want to adopt the child was I felt that if I adopted her, I would be taking her away from somebody who could not have children. I was blessed with three healthy children. I had lost a child. I recognized the miracle that is birth. And I felt that if I adopted this child, who was very much a member of my family, and I loved her dearly, but I felt if I adopted her, I'd be taking her away from somebody who could not have children. Now, my friends, my family members, those I work with, and those I went to church with, they kept telling me, John, you need to adopt her, you need to adopt her. And I knew that in my in my head, my heart just couldn't accept that. Again, I felt guilty. Now, fortunately, we were able to adopt her 22 months later, and what a blessing it's been. The second one that we adopted came to us when she was 18 months old. 18 months old. Her mother dropped her off at a grocery store to a stranger. Um, and she is third generation foster care, which means her family, her parents and her grandparents were also in the foster care system. And she knew one word. One word is all she knew. And that was shut up. Shut up, shut up, shut up. It's the only word that she would say. She would hit everything in sight. Uh, my wife, my son, myself, the cats, everything. Uh, now she's the most obnoxiously sweet princess you've ever met. Just the sweetest, caringest child. Which shows me a lot about um, environment. What kind of environment is she coming from? The only word is shut up. A word that we don't allow in the house. Now, again, I didn't want to adopt her. Because at this point I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that's five kids and I don't want to be the Brady Bunch. Let me tell you, when you got 11 kids in the house at the same time, you are so far beyond the Brady Bunch level. And my wife and I don't have an Alice. And we would love to have an Alice sometimes. So again, didn't want to adopt her. I think it does too many kids. The caseworker, she came in July. The following April, the caseworker came to us and said, Dr. John, Dr. Kelly, my wife's a doctor, nutrition. The mom's going to have a baby. Maurice said, hooray. I said, no, no. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, going to be another child we're going to adopt. I can't, how am I going to pay for this? And my wife said, can we adopt both? I said, and the caseworker said, yes. And I said, I, no, no, no. And they're talking back and forth. I finally said, I'm still in the room. I said, no. Um, and my wife said, just ignore him. He'll change his mind. A few months later, this child came to us 27 hours old. 27 hours old and uh, beautiful, beautiful baby. And I just immediately fell in love with her as I did her sister. And a year later, we were blessed to adopt both of them. And you know what? I would do it again and again and again. Adoption has made my life so much fuller in so many different ways. 
One of the hardest parts of being a foster parent for me is knowing these children are going to go back to an environment that is not safe. Now, the end goal of foster care is reunification, which means being reunified with their birth parents or biological family members. Sadly, 20 to 30 percent of the children who do reunify come back into foster care or re-enter back into foster care far more traumatized. And there have been those times where I've known without a shadow of a doubt that they're going back to an environment that is not safe. But the court saw it differently. And that's frightening for me because I lay awake at night thinking, how are these children doing? I lay awake at night praying for these children. Or even worse, I have nightmares about these children that they're not safe. Um, but I've had to, I had have had to find peace in the fact that I've done the best I can. I've given this child the love for the time being they were with me, that I've been able to provide them that unconditional love that they so desperately need. Every child deserves to be loved, and um, yeah, it, it, but it's hard. It's hard. Now we've had times of kids have come back into care and they've come back into our home. Um, further traumatized, um, but it, it's hard. It's hard knowing the knowing that sometimes they're going back to a, an environment that's that's going to be dangerous for them or harmful for them. And all we can do is just be content with the fact that we've given them all that we can and to pray for them. What it's important to recognize is that for some of the birth parents, for the kids we've cared for. My wife and I and foster parents in general might be seen as the bad guy because those birth parents don't, might not want to recognize the choices they've made in their life. They might not want to acknowledge the fact that they've made poor choices. Maybe they are still suffering from their own pain. Maybe they're still suffering from their own anxiety and trauma. Trauma and anxiety that they don't know how to process it because they've never got the help they needed. So they don't reach out to us. We, we reach out to them as many as we can, but sometimes they just won't acknowledge it and they shut us out of their lives and um but i understand why again they might be dealing with their own problems as i mentioned earlier uh two of the three we've adopted are third generation foster care which means their parents and grandparents were also in care and they never got the help they needed when they were children and that trauma passes down to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation so many kids in foster care have never had a holiday celebrated. They've never had a birthday celebrated. I recall we had a child who was 10 years old and we had to teach him how to sing happy birthday. It's just staggering. The 14-year-old boy who came to our house rough as nails. In fact, he came to us. Uh, he was part of a sibling group of five. Uh, there was a 14-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And they came from a house that the sheriff's department calls the House of Feces. You could not see the floor in the house. It was covered in human and dog feces. There was no electricity, no running water, no plumbing, no heat, no air, no food. No father in the picture. The mother's running a meth lab with her two teenage boyfriends. And the 14-year-old was just filled with a lot of anger. He also filled with a lot of guilt filled with a lot of guilt because he felt it was his fault that his siblings were being placed in foster care because his it was responsibility it was his responsibility to care for his siblings make sure they were fed make sure the the bills were paid in the house make sure the kids got to school uh, and learning was taking place so when he and his siblings were placed in foster care he uh he considered it his fault he had a lot of guilt in fact when they came to our house their clothes were stapled together and we had to burn those clothing because the clothes were contaminated with meth and 
human and dog feces. Well, it was during that time at Christmas. Again, lots of anger, lots of walls of resentment towards us. And we gave him, um, he opened up a present from us, my wife and I, and it was a black leather jacket. And he said to us with just the gruffest voice, he said, can I keep this? And my wife said, of course, absolutely. And he burst out into tears. It was his first real gift. First real gift that anybody had ever given him. When we have Christmas and birthdays, we make a huge for these kids because for some of them, again, they've never had that time. So we really try to make it um, a very, very special day for them. You know, I often tell people that um, that I can't change the world and, and you can't change the world, but this is how we can change the world together. Years from now, when that child leaves their home, for whatever reason it might be, years from now, they might not remember my name, and years from now, they might not remember my face. But years from now, they'll remember one thing, and that is this. For a time in their life, and maybe the only time in their life, somebody loved them. And that's how we change their lives. You know, so whether you're a foster parent, or whether you've decided you can't be a foster parent, but you can help children in need in your area. Because there's kids in every single community in our nation who are suffering from abuse. Children in every single community in our nation who are suffering from human trafficking, victims of human trafficking. So if you decide that you can't be a foster parent, but you can help these children and you can do that in some way. When we help these children, their world is changed. We can't change the world, but for these children, their world is changed. And that makes all the difference. And great job, as always, to Faith on that beautiful piece. And very special thanks to Dr. John DeGuermo, founder and director of the Foster Care Institute. And he doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. My goodness, the number of children that have passed through his home. And it is so true that when you can just love one of these kids... You may not be changing the world, but you're changing a world. And my goodness, love is what changes the world of any kid in this world. If you love what you're listening to and the stories we bring you each and every week, please give us a five-star rating. It really helps us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or whatever platform you listen to us on. Finally, it's time for another one of Roger McGrath's Hollywood goes to war stories. So far, we've heard the stories of Clark Gable, Jimmy Stewart, and Tyrone Power. Today, McGrath will be treating us to the story of Hollywood strapping, steely-eyed leading man, Wayne Morris. Here's McGrath. Wayne Morris was born and bred in California. Though he didn't think about it growing up, he looked like something created for screen stardom. He was tall, athletic, and handsome. He was also intelligent and good-natured. It wasn't until college, though, that he got the acting bug. Then the six-foot-two-and-a-half and well-built 200-pound Morris began taking acting lessons and appearing in plays. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed college boy was soon signed to a Warner Brothers contract. Morris appeared in 29 movies by the time he was 27 years old and starred in most of them including the box office and critical smash hit, Kid Galahad. He then walked away from Hollywood and stardom, 
to serve as a Navy fighter pilot in World War II. Wayne Morris is born Bert Dwayne Morris Jr. in February 1914 in Los Angeles. His father, Bert Dwayne Morris Sr., has New England roots by way of the upper Midwest in Nebraska. There is a Morris ancestor who fought in the Revolutionary War as an officer. Wayne Morris's mother is the former Anna Fitzgerald from Texas. There is a Fitzgerald ancestor who fought in the Revolutionary War as an enlisted man. Wayne Morris will have a younger brother, Richard Morris, who also becomes a pilot in World War II. When Wayne Morris is still a little boy, the family moves to San Francisco and remains there before returning to Los Angeles when he is almost 17. Morris graduates from Los Angeles High School in 1932 and begins college only a few miles away at Los Angeles City College. There he becomes a theater arts major and starts studying with the then famous Pasadena Playhouse. He begins appearing on stage and attracts the attention of a talent scout from Warner Brothers. The studio gives him a screen test. The camera loves him and he's signed to a contract. Morris makes his screen debut in 1936 in China Clipper, starring Pat O'Brien and Humphrey Bogart. A fictional account of Pan American Airlines establishing the first Trans-Pacific Commercial Flight Service, the movie has Morris playing a navigator on the Martin M-130 seaplane. Making the movie gets Morris interested in aviation. In his next seven movies, Morris has only two substantial roles, but even his minor roles mark him for stardom. In 1937, in Kid Galahad, he gets his chance for the big time with the role of a heavyweight boxer, Kid Galahad. His co-stars are Edward G. Robinson, Betty Davis, and Humphrey Bogart. Galahad, clean of heart. Gallant rescuer of ladies, but no woman in his life. The strength of ten men, because no dame can get close enough to give him a haircut. <laughs> in that tough company, Morris holds his own, and his character makes him the favorite of audiences. The film is a major success, and Morris is elevated to leading man. Morris stars in a variety of roles in his next 20 movies. While making the movie Flight Angels in 1940, he begins taking flying lessons. He's soon a licensed pilot, flying regularly and logging many hours of flight time. With Japanese aggression in the Far East and in the Pacific increasing, Morris joins a Naval Reserve unit in 1941 and is commissioned an ensign. Following Japan's sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, the Navy activates Morrison and sends him to flight school. By late summer 1942, he has his wings. He desperately wants to fly fighters in the Pacific, but the Navy wants him here at home as an instructor so he can also make public relation appearances. Moreover, the Navy considers him too big to cram himself into the cockpit of a Grumman Wildcat, the Navy's fighter at the time. Now a Lieutenant J.G. 
Morris is less than thrilled when he's ordered to a Navy airfield at Hutchinson, Kansas, as a primary flight instructor. He begins his assignment with resignation rather than enthusiasm. But the plot is about to thicken. Morris is married to Patricia O'Rourke, a beautiful young actress. Her mother has a younger brother, David McCampbell. McCampbell is a lieutenant commander, a combat veteran, and one of the Navy's top pilots. One day, McCampbell happens to fly in Hutchinson on a cross-country trip. Morris greets Uncle Dave and pleads with him to pull some strings and get him into the fight in the Pacific. Give me a letter, says McCampbell. McCampbell is able to push Morris's letter of request through the chain of command and get Morris transferred. However, Morris now finds himself training in Jacksonville, Florida in the PBY seaplane. The Navy still thinks Morris is too big for fighters. Morris reckons he will now make it to the Pacific, but as a PBY pilot, he will be flying reconnaissance and rescue missions. To Morris's rescue comes Uncle Dave a second time. Commander McCampbell has been tasked with forming a fighter squadron and again tells Morris to give him a, a letter of request. McCampbell says he picks only those men who have a burning desire to fly fighters in combat. McCampbell's squadron, designated VF-15, will be flying the new Grumman Hellcat, which is a far superior fighter in every way to the Wildcat but it doesn't have much more cockpit room, and pilots still have to sit on top of their parachute packs. It will be a very tight fit for Morris. In the spring of 1944, after many months of intense training, McCampbell's squadron is assigned to the carrier Essex. By May, Essex arrives in the Marshall Islands, now being used by the Navy as a staging area for the invasion of the Marianas. While waiting for the invasion, Essex launches raids against Japanese-held Marcus and Wake Islands. This gives Lieutenant Morris his first taste of combat. Morris and the others encounter no aerial opposition from Japanese fighters, but are met with intense anti-aircraft fire. Several American planes are lost and nearly all, including Morris's, suffer damage. During June, McCampbell's boys begin hitting Saipan in the Marianas. Morris is in a group of Hellcats that destroy several seaplane ramps and nearly a dozen seaplanes on the ground. Then Morris sights a Mavis that has gotten airborne. Mavis is the U.S. Navy's identification code for the Kawanishi seaplane a large four-engine plane with a crew of nine. The Kawanishi is armed with four 30-caliber machine guns and one 20-millimeter cannon. Morris dives on the big bird and opens up with his Hellcats six 50-caliber Browning machine guns. The 50-caliber slugs rock the Japanese seaplane and cause it to roll. Out of control, it plummets into the ocean. Lieutenant Morris has his first aerial victory. His next action 
comes a week later in the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot, which is what Navy pilots call the airborne phase of the Battle of the Philippine Sea. Morris and others of VF-15 are flying cover for torpedo planes and dive bombers when four zeros drop out of the clouds above and begin a run on the bombers. Morris takes on the lead zero. The Hellcat and the Zero each bank and dive and roll, but it's Morris's machine gun fire that takes effect. The Zero begins smoking, noses over, and plunges straight down thousands of feet into a layer of clouds. Morris follows it down, but once he emerges below the clouds, the Zero is nowhere to be seen. Morris soon spies an oil slick on the water, indicating the Zero must have plunged into the sea. However, since he didn't actually see the Zero crash into the ocean, he can only count what was surely an aerial victory as a probable. For the next two months, Morris and the rest of VF-15 hit targets not only on Saipan, but also on nearby Guam and Tinian. Most of the time, the Hellcats bomb and strafe. Their enemy is anti-aircraft fire. After the turkey shoot, the skies over the Marianas have been nearly cleared of Japanese planes, so more aerial victories will have to wait. In September, Essex and other American carriers begin launching strikes against the Palau Islands, especially Peleliu. McCampbell leads the first sweep. Neither he nor any of his pilots are able to add to their kill totals because they catch the Japanese planes on the ground. They destroyed dozens of them, but under Navy and Marine Corps regulations, only planes destroyed in the air count as kills. After several days of pounding the Palau Islands, Essex and other carriers are ordered to sail west to the Philippines and strike at Mindanao airfields. On their first sweep over Mindanao, Morris and two other VF-15 pilots spot a Japanese patrol plane and blow it out of the sky. Later in the day, on a second sweep, Morris sends a burst of machine gun fire into a topsy, the Navy's code name for Mitsubishi twin-engine troop transport plane. The transport's starboard wing tank erupts in flames, and soon the entire plane is ablaze and spiraling to the earth. It's Morris's second confirmed aerial victory. Several days later, over Negros Island, Morris spies a zero below him. As Morris dives in banks to get in behind the zero, the zero goes into a steep spiral dive. Probably to the Japanese pilot's surprise, Morris is able to put his Hellcat into an equally tight spiral dive and fire several bursts into the zero. The zero explodes in a ball of flame and Lieutenant Morris has his third confirmed kill. Later the same day, Morris and Ensign Ken Flynn jump a Nate, the Navy's code name for the Nakajima fighter. The Nate is the Japanese Army's equivalent to the Japanese Navy's Zero. Morris's first burst causes the Nakajima to begin smoking. 
Flynn follows with a burst that causes the already badly damaged fighter to erupt in flames and roll into a spiral dive that ends in the ocean. Minutes later, Morris and Flynn go after a Zero that's on the tail of a Hellcat. Morris fires and the Zero explodes in a ball of flame. It's number four for Morris. Seconds later, Morris finds himself flying directly into an oncoming Nakajima. He hits the Nate with a single burst before banking steeply. In the meantime, Flynn circles behind the Nate and finishes off the already crippled fighter. During the rest of September, Morris gets no more aerial victories, but together with his wingman and other pilots, is credited with putting a Japanese submarine out of action and sinking two freighters and several patrol boats. Then, in October, in a strike at Okinawa, Morris dives on a Kawasaki fighter, Japan's most modern fighter. The Tony, as U.S. Navy code identifies the plane, has an inline liquid-cooled engine that the Japanese copied from the Dambler Benz engine that powers the German Messerschmitt fighter. The Kawasaki fighter tries to outmaneuver Morris by turning inside him, but Morris is able to stay behind the Tony and pour fire into him. The Kawasaki shakes and smokes and loses altitude rapidly. It hits the ocean and cartwheels spectacularly before sinking. Morris now has the big three of Japanese fighters. The Mitsubishi Zero, the Nakajima K-57, and the Kawasaki K-61. But Kid Galahad is also an ace. Later in October 1944, comes the epic battle for Leyte Gulf. Dave McCampbell and his boys are active in the air over the Sibulian Sea. Morris gets 1-0 easily while making a high pass, giving him six confirmed aerial victories. Later on the same day, Morris fires at two oncoming zeros, but his rounds either miss or have no effect. He then banks steeply to come around and try again, but finds the zeros turning with him. He doesn't think much of his chances in tight turns against two zeros and ducks into a cloud. Instead of going through the cloud and emerging on the other side, Morris circles inside the cloud and comes out where he entered. Just as he has hoped, he finds the Japanese fighters waiting for him on the cloud's other side. This allows Morris to come up behind the Zeros. A burst from Morris's machine gun sends one Zero spiraling into the sea and the other scurrying for home. Morris is in no condition to pursue. His Hellcat has been riddled with bullets. The engine is coughing, and hydraulic fluid is running into his cockpit. Nonetheless, he now has seven confirmed aerial victories. By the end of November, Air Group 15 completes its tour, and Morris's war is over. He returns home with three rows of ribbons on his chest. Among other decorations, he has been awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross four times and the Air Medal two times. Wayne Morris is Hollywood's only ace of the war. 
he had no easy days. Three of the Hellcats he flew were so badly damaged by Japanese fire, they were stripped of their serviceable parts and pushed overboard. Yet, said Morris, it wasn't the Japs I feared, but my own shipmates. Every time they showed a picture aboard Essex, I was scared to death it would be one of mine. That's something I never could have lived down. Back home, Morris serves in a Naval Reserve unit and is promoted to Lieutenant Commander. He also restarts his movie career in 1947 after a six-year interruption. He will appear in 36 movies and be cast in dozens of television shows over the next 13 years. In September 1959, his World War II commander and his wife's uncle, Dave McCampbell, now Captain McCampbell, takes command of the carrier, Bonham Richard. While the ship is in San Francisco Bay, McCampbell invites Morris and some other former squadron mates to come aboard for a short cruise into the Pacific, where the carrier will conduct air exercises. On the way back into San Francisco Bay, he climbs a series of ladders to the carrier's bridge for a good view of the passage under the Golden Gate Bridge. He reaches the ship's bridge and collapses. A helicopter flies him to Oakland Naval Hospital, but it's too late. He's pronounced dead of a massive coronary. Wayne Morris's death shocked everyone. He was only 45 years old. Hollywood lost one of her stars. The U.S. Navy lost one of her aces. And America lost one of her heroes. And a great job by Greg Hengler, as always, on the production of that piece. And a special thanks, as always, to Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, also a U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA. And by the way, watch Paths of Glory, because it's Morris at his best as an actor. But my goodness, his best work, of course, was in World War II. Four distinguished flying crosses. That's crazy. And, of course, the only true ace that Hollywood ever produced. It's hard to produce aces, period. But that one came from Hollywood is absolutely astonishing. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, by all means, please go back and listen to them. We have the story of Saturday morning cartoons, the story of a man in a glass coffin, and also Casey Brogan's story and his path to sobriety, and so many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib. This is the Our American Stories Podcast. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. 
Hannah Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 